Today's show is sponsored in part by Retronyms. Retronyms makes tools for music creators. AudioCopy is a free app for recording, editing, and sharing music. You can find loops and grooves in any style to fit your taste. Make music whenever, wherever. Tap your inspiration and remember to keep it fresh. To get audio copy for free, visit retronyms.com slash pod. That's R-E-T-R-O-N-Y-M-S dot com slash pod. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with my friend, Drew Neal. Hey, Drew. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Pretty good. So I'll tell you, when I was prepping for the podcast, I was actually uh-huh. surprised at how little is in your VimRC. Ah, yeah, no, there's a thought. Um, I'm not sure if it's all that up to date, actually, what's on GitHub. Ah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I think it's great to publish your VimRC, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm not quite practicing what I preach there. <laughs> ah, so there's, there's secret sauce that we don't have access to? Ah, maybe, maybe. Although, to be honest, I kind of prefer to like depend a lot on, on plugins. Mm-hmm. And not very much on my own custom stuff. I'm quite sort of shy with the leader. That's what that was. What stood out to me actually was the lack of leader commands because I have yeah. like I don't know fifty or something. Yeah, um, I gave a talk at Vim London last year about I don't know what was it called. It was called Follow My Leader. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at you know the idea of the leader key is that you know Vim has a very sort of saturated command set. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the keys on the keyboard and what they're mapped to, it's really hard to find something that's that's available. Mm-hmm. And so the leader just gives you this prefix behind which you can put all of your custom stuff. Mm-hmm. But something that I've noticed, especially in the plugins of Tim Pope, who writes some of the best plugins out there, mm-hmm. I noticed that he never advocates using leader. And I started to sort of notice a pattern where there were these available commands sort of hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And so in that talk, I was going through a few methods that you can use to find available mappings hmm. uh, so that you can avoid using leader. Now, that's not to say that I don't recommend using leader. I still think it's great for those very personal commands mm-hmm. that are, you know, yours and yours alone. And anyone who wants to copy them, you know, is copying your preferences mm-hmm. uh, wholesale. Uh, but if you're creating something that you think other people might use, then I think it's really good to come up with something that's a bit more permanent mm-hmm. uh, and a bit less likely to clash with somebody else's own set of configurations. So it seems to me like he tends to prefer to like augment or slightly change the built-in, like the behavior of built-in commands um, or sort of utilize what's there. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's one of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, there is a Tim Pope plugin called, I think it's called Speed Dating. Mm-hmm. And in that, he takes the Control A and Control X, which normally you can use those to increment or decrement a number. Mm-hmm. And he supercharges those so that you can increment or decrement loads of things, including dates and Roman numerals and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's a really nice example of that, of sort of overloading uh, existing functionality. Another really clever thing that Tim Pope has done is overloading the GF, mm-hmm. which stands for go to file. And the basic mechanics of that are basically look up a file um, you know, the, the file path that's under the cursor, go to that. And there's a little bit you can do to sort of customize it in terms of like, if you don't find it, try adding this suffix and things like that. But with rails.vim, 
um, Tim Pope has made it so that GF will jump to the model or the view or, you know, there's, there's all sorts of clever logic behind that. So he's sort of supercharged the GF command. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's definitely one example. But the kind of thing that I was looking at here was things like, let's say, you know, Vim has this sort of a grammar and you can compose together an operator such as D for delete or Y for yank. You can follow either of those commands with any motion or text object. Mm-hmm. So you can say DW to delete a word. You could say DIT to delete inside a tag. That's a text object. But if you tried something like DM, well, M is not a motion. M is the mark command. Mm -hmm. And so there are actually lots and lots of ways that you can do D followed by something that's not a motion. Mm -hmm. So it's like that operator motion thing. For a long time, that was all I could see was that D should be followed by a motion. But then by just looking at the patterns in Tim Pope's plugins, I realized, oh, well, you, you don't have to use D that way. You can just say uh, D, P, D, M, D, you know, all sorts of things. Mm. Um, and that gives you some more space to define things? Exactly, yes. There's another Tim Pope plugin that I love, which is called Unimpaired. Mm-hmm. And in that one, he creates a lot of mappings which come in pairs, mm -hmm. uh, things that enable something, then disable something, or encode something and decode something, mm -hmm. uh, depending which way you go. And they're all mapped to the opening and closing bracket keys. Mm -hmm. I, lo I love that plugin, by the way. Oh, it's absolutely indispensable. I think it's the plugin I recommend most frequently. Mm -hmm. I also think it's nice because it, it makes you aware of the different commands that are there like you don't like I, I didn't know about things like you know be next and be first and be last and all these things like it's like oh yeah these are okay if Tim Pope thinks these are useful I should probably know what they do yeah sure so it used to be that I had quite a few toggle mappings using leader mm -hmm. my vimrc things like I used to do comma w would toggle between word wrap on an uh no is it word wrap line wrap one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I think comma N toggled line numbers. Mm -hmm. um, I had a few really basic uh, leader commands like that. And then I realized Unimpaired has a really nice mnemonic for turning these options on and off that you want. And the one that I use is CO mm -hmm. followed by a letter. And so if I do COW, mm -hmm. uh, which is a nice cow, yep. uh, that one toggles word wrap. Yep. Like change option wrap. That's it. Yeah, that's, yep. the, that's the mnemonic. Yep. Um, C-O-N does line numbering. Uh, C-O-X does this funny thing where it enables cursor line and cursor column and gives you a sort of crosshair. Mm -hmm. So when I learned about that option, I went into my VimRC file and I just ripped out loads and loads of leader commands that were previously toggling options. Mm -hmm. And I've never really missed them. And I've never, I kind of, I felt like I was rejoicing at the fact that uh, I had, you know, vacated this big namespace and I could now bind other useful stuff uh, to leader W and leader N, which were previously squatted by these toggle options. Mm -hmm. But then I, uh, since then, I've never really got around to finding other uses for those things. So, hmm. but I think I've also, when I have come up with something that I find really useful, I've often tried to follow this pattern of looking for a vacant mapping hidden behind an operator or or using one of these other tricks that I talked about in that talk. So. Right, yeah, just one that like, came to mind was like with surround.vim, like you do the CS, like change surrounding. Yeah. I guess that was yeah. a, that's just available and you can... Exactly, yes. And grabbed it. Yes, and so it's no longer available because surround is another indispensable plugin. For sure, and should be core vim, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Let's just merge it. <laughs> so I, I sort of have... Um, <laughs> 
I set this question up a little bit. I, I think so. You wrote a book about Vim, and yeah. you've run uh, Vimcast.org for a yeah. long time now. Do you want to be the Vim guy? Are you still the Vim guy? Do you want to keep doing that? Like, are you, are, have you gotten tired of that? Um, no, I, I, I've, I haven't got tired of it. I think um, it's it's nice to be known for something. At the moment, my work on Vimcast is on hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been about a year since I last published one. And I, I've kind of got past the point of feeling anxious about that. I think, you know, when a month goes by and two months go, go by, I feel more and more anxious. But then a certain point passes and I, I stop caring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I've stopped Vimcasts. I might pick it up again in the future. But sure. um, it's not something I set out to become, really. But it's nice to be known for something. And um, it's quite a strange thing to be known for because... People either love or hate Vim, and hmm. if they love Vim, then they probably know of my work. Mm-hmm. And if they hate Vim, they've probably never heard of me. So I have this strange sort of, somewhat of a celebrity status within a very small subset of uh, the community. Yeah, <laughs> and um, people who aren't interested in Vim probably think I'm ridiculous for caring about it as much as I do. What made you uh, stop working on Vimcasts? Um, I just I don't have enough time to do all the things. Yep. For a while, well, I took a break from Vimcasts as I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. Vimcasts started out as my sort of side project. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing Practical Vim, writing Practical Vim was my main project. And I wanted a side project that wasn't Vim related. So yeah. Vimcasts took a backseat during that period. And then I picked it up again when I finished the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's taken a backseat now because I have another side project, which is Peer to Peer. Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah. So peer-to-peer is a series of live coding videos uh, where we sit down with an expert programmer and we set them a challenge. Uh, we try to pick a challenge that is something that's you know in their comfort zone, mm-hmm. but maybe just something that on the surface it looks quite shallow, but then when you get a little bit deeper, there's just a little something that's a little bit more challenging than they first expected. So mm-hmm. you know, someone sits down thinking, oh, this will take an hour, and then it ends up taking you know a bit longer mm-hmm. so we we try to give people a challenge that is uh keeps them in the comfort zone and gives them an opportunity to demonstrate what they're good at and um really just by making these videos it gives you the chance to watch over the shoulder of an expert programmer at work mm-hmm. and i've i've found that that's a really good way to learn by watching other people work for sure um yeah and and it's it continues to be a good way of learning, even as I become more um, more capable myself. Um, I, I can think back to something from very early on in my programming days, where I hadn't spent much time in the terminal, and I was still at that point where the terminal felt very foreign. And uh, I didn't realize that you could hit tab to complete paths and command names and so on. Uh-huh. And I remember, I remember seeing someone doing that and just being amazed that, I don't know, at that point, maybe it had been about three months I'd been using a, a terminal without realizing this. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine using a terminal without that now. But uh, I can actually believe that I got as far as I did because... You can read articles about the terminal that don't mention it. You can mm-hmm. read beginner articles about the terminal. It's such a... Um, as someone who uses a terminal, it's a thing that it's easy to forget you once didn't know. Right. Um, and I think that's a really nice example of something that I picked up by watching someone work. Totally. And there's so many other similar little things where, uh, you know, you can discover things accidentally. 
and then you can incorporate them into your workflow. But sometimes just seeing someone else doing something deliberately lets you arrive at that piece of knowledge much sooner. Oh, for sure. Yeah. People that listen to this regularly will not be surprised that I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> I think it's just a very information dense stream, watching someone actually do the work rather than sort of talk about the work statically. Yeah. So you have an interesting uh, model where you have a guest and a host, and then in the next uh, iteration, they or later on another video, the guest becomes the host. That's right. So yeah. A, a re recursive chain or something of peer-to-peer -peer people. Yeah, that's right. So when I started uh, making plans to make these videos, of course, I drew up my little short list of people who I would like to watch working. Mm -hmm. And I would still love to make all of those videos, but... It's very much my circle of people who I look up to. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are people I've worked with or have worked with their open source work or read their books or, or something. They're people who are within my orbit. Mm -hmm. And I want to be making videos from people whose work I'm not familiar with. You know, mm -hmm. there are great people out there doing great work that um, I'm unaware of. And mm -hmm. I think I could learn even more by featuring those people on this show. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the format that we do is, uh, well, to give, to give an example, the first video I made was with Tom Stewart. Mm -hmm. And then I invited Tom to come back on the show as host. And he set a challenge for Camille Baldock. Uh, and then Camille came back on the show and she set a challenge for Sam Fippen. Mm -hmm. And so we've got this nice sort of a chain joining together these, uh, these people. And I always like to think, well, okay, here's this person who I look up to. Who do they look up to? Who, who would they learn from watching them at work? Mm -hmm. And I sort of hope that, I guess, within, for example, within the Ruby community, there's someone who everyone looks up to, and, and that's Matt's. Hmm. I, I don't think, if I wrote a, an email to Matt's and said, hey, can you come on my show? He might just ignore me. Um, but if I look up to the people in the community that I look up to and ask them, mm -hmm. who do you look up to? You know, I wonder in how many steps it would take before before someone could introduce me to Matt's and he would actually take notice. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a sort of a long-term goal, I guess, Yeah, <laughs> is to, uh, to, see, to see where this ends up. Yeah, that's a nice trick. I actually, we, we use that here on the podcast. Like when, I, when we finish wrapping up recording, I will ask you who you think we should have on. Uh, and right. that's been a nice source for us, partly just for ideas, because it's hard to think of you know, someone every single week who should we talk to. Yeah. Um, and, but also, like you said, like it, it expands your, your circles a little bit. Like why limit yourself to people that you know already? Yeah. So that works for us too. There's something nice about just setting a ball rolling and seeing, seeing where it goes. And now I want to take a second to thank the sponsors of the podcast for this episode, DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is built for developers. They are simple cloud hosting built for us. And I got to tell you, I'm on their landing page right now, and it's pretty legit. It's clean, it's beautiful, and there's a GIF on it that shows the process of signing up, and it's real fast. It's like four or five clicks, and then bam, you get a droplet, which is their word for server. Once the server's in the cloud, it's a droplet. But yeah, DigitalOcean, we're a fan. We use them. We like them. Uh, they've been rock solid. It's good. They got big, beefy servers, lots of CPUs, lots of RAM, lots of hard drive, all that. Good uptime, active community, everything you would pretty much want for a host if you are going to take hosting into your own hands, your own digital hands. So if you'd like to learn more, you can go to digitalocean.com. And when you sign up, make sure to use the code GIANTROBOTS with a giant GNR at checkout for a $10 credit towards your purchase. So thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting this show.
so you you referred to peer to peer as a side project. Yeah, that's its current status. Mm -hmm. Is that um, where you want it to stay? I'd like to become more serious about it. I'd like to be able to devote more time to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm I'm growing it as a. I guess I'm bootstrapping the business. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, right now it's not it's not bringing in enough that I can devote all of my time to it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I would like to devote all of my time to it. Actually, I I always want to have a balance between the time I spend teaching and making documentation and the time I spend actually building, mm -hmm. um, writing code. Sure. Um, so at the moment, I spend about three days a week contracting and two days a week on various peer-to-peer -peer related things. Um, and for me, that's quite a good balance at the moment. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'd be willing to do three days a week on peer-to-peer. -peer. I think I could get more done. Um, I've got a bit of a backlog at the moment. But ultimately, where I want to go with it is to outsource more, more of the work. Yeah. I knew from day one that I didn't want to be doing the video editing, so I've outsourced that all along. Mm-hmm. One of the things that causes me quite a lot of stress in making peer-to-peer -peer is the production side of things. Uh, it's the hardest thing is to find a time in the calendar when three busy people can show up in a room yeah. at the same time. Sure. And often I've got, you know, I'm trying to arrange two or three of these at the same time. And though I don't enjoy those email threads where we're just, you know, suggesting a date and, oh, one person can't make it, let's suggest another date. So yeah. I'd love to outsource the, the production side of things. Another thing that I am outsourcing, which I'm really excited about, is uh, we've, we've got captions, closed captions in English mm -hmm. for all of our videos now. And I've been working with a transcriptionist who produces these. And it's been a really fascinating process, actually, for me. The transcriptionist I work with isn't from a technical background. You know, she's, she's a fast typist and she's done a lot of transcription as a, as a secretary. But there's a lot of words that we programmers use that make no sense, and she often mishears them. So we go through a, a sort of a peer review, uh, a proofreading stage with the captions. Mm -hmm. And the process I use for that is, well, we, we keep all of our captions on GitHub. Mm -hmm. And we use pull requests to submit the corrections. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I have a, a mailing list of people who have volunteered to, to do this proofreading. And I'll send out an email saying, okay, we've got a new video. Uh, it's 90 minutes long. I'm going to chop it up into 15-minute segments, and each volunteer will do a 15-minute segment of proofreading. Mm. So for 90 minutes, we'll need, what's that, um, six volunteers. Uh, so we, I wait until I've got six volunteers, then I send out the video and assign a 15-minute portion, and each person gets back with a pull request. And it's just some of the corrections I can make with a spell checker, mm -hmm. but some of the corrections you really need to be watching the video and listening and reading the captions and you have to see, hear what's on the video to be able to see that the written word is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's really satisfying to see these results, um, these corrections coming back. Mm -hmm. And when we merge all of those pull requests into the, the final document, and then if I watch the video with those captions, it's just, uh, you know, there are still mistakes in there. We can't pick up everything, but it generally feels intelligible. Mm -hmm. A funny thing about closed captions is the percentages can sound really good like if you have 97 percent accuracy that sounds okay but it's actually pretty much a, an error every sentence hmm. or every paragraph I, I can't remember which as you go from 97 percent to 98 percent it goes from whatever it is maybe a, an error every sentence to every paragraph and then 99 percent is an error every page of of text or, or whatever so when you hear about google's well youtube's auto-captioning feature, which gets something like 80% accuracy. Mm. 
at first I thought, oh, well, that's pretty good. What, one word out of five is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, if you try and watch a video like that yeah. with the sound off, just paying attention to the captions, it's completely unintelligible. It's yeah. absolutely useless. And so the better the captions are, the more useful they are. And um, this proofreading process really, really lifts them. It's, it's awesome that you were able to uh, distribute that work, that there are people willing to just do that. Which, yeah. We've seen a similar thing uh, on Upcase, which is kind of awesome, where people will open issues or even submit pull requests and be like, hey, I noticed like the, like the just this morning, it was like, hey, I noticed the footer was wrong on this page, so here's a pull request that fixes it. It's like, awesome, thank you, it's, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I think if you can make a really low barrier to letting people make corrections, then um, you definitely benefit from that. Yeah. I, I sometimes think if... Um, if I could make it so that as you were watching one of these videos and there were captions, if you could pause the video at any moment and you saw that there was a mistake in the caption and then there was a link just underneath, mm. uh, this would be quite hard to do. But if that link could go to the GitHub page and actually highlight the exact caption mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like have a button saying, you know, submit your correction, mm-hmm. uh, then... I think once once a video was out there, you could you could be pretty sure that after a week or two, you would have uh, received all the corrections that you would. Yeah, but it, it's it's just interesting to me. Like you you think, oh, well, these people are our customers, so they're expecting that everything is basically like we'll we'll do all the work and it will basically come out perfect, and then they get the results of that. But actually, I, I feel like I keep running into these instances in the world where people are willing to be collaborative and be like, I, I'm willing to help on this thing. Or like, mm. I noticed this problem and I I'm I'm happy to help you fix it. Which is like yeah. is awesome. like from like a I think if you thought of it from like a strictly economic like an economist point of view like no one would ever do that but actually it turns out in the real world people do that and it's wonderful yeah I think there's something also about like the GitHub collaboration thing where it becomes easy to do like the fact that we give access to our source code to ev- all the subscribers and that they can see it and they can actually they, they're empowered to you know report things and find where the problem is and fix it like I think that makes a huge difference mm, yeah otherwise I, I'm not sure how they possibly could. Yeah. So more people should share their source code is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Maybe. You mentioned that maybe you'd eventually like to have peer-to-peer be more like three days, but probably never full-time. Mm. Like, do you have an ideal schedule in mind that you'd like to get to eventually, like years down the road, if you could, if everything fell into place perfectly, what that would look like? Yeah, well, I guess actually, I was thinking about this today. I'm I'm not that far off that mm. at the moment. I, I want awesome. to have, I want to have about half my time building and about half my time teaching Mm -hmm. um i always want to have some of both uh part of that is you can't teach if you don't actually make stuff right if if you don't actually do the things uh that that you're teaching yep Um, you can you can eventually your sales your skills can go stale um but i do actually feel as though teaching is the thing i enjoy most Hmm. i get a real thrill of seeing the penny drop Hmm. and i think it's more rewarding when the topic that you're teaching is difficult when when that knowledge is hard won hmm. mm-hmm. um you know even though now you understand the thing and you maybe take it for granted you can remember that it was a battle to get that knowledge yourself mm-hmm. and uh anything you can do to help other people win that knowledge mm-hmm. that seeing seeing someone uh learn something gives me a lot of pleasure mm-hmm. it's it's lucky to be able to say that you feel like you're almost close to your ideal lifestyle yeah yeah um Maybe lucky isn't the right word. I mean, you've, you've done a lot of hard work to get there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess you've got to enjoy what you've got, mm-hmm. uh, but not too much. You know, you've always got to have some ambition as well. Otherwise, you'll just stand still. So mm-hmm. um, I, I feel as though the balance, the work-life balance that I've got now is quite good. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always going to be a challenge to, to maintain that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm expecting to become a dad soon. Oh, uh, so that's going to that's gonna bring some more challenges. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether, whether I can maintain this work-life balance uh, when a child comes along, that's going to be a, another challenge for me to, uh, to find out. It, it, might be, it might be a few more years before I can get back to a point where I have a good life-work balance. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, r- right now things are good. But everything's about to change, and and that's good. I, I I don't ever want to be standing still. Sure, yeah. Is your freelance work remote? Right now it is, yes. I've actually just moved to the countryside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been living in London for about three years. Uh, moved there planning to spend a year. Um, there's some some strange force that keeps people in London. It's, it's a very hard place to leave. Mm-hmm. But we've moved to Sussex, um, takes me about an hour to get back into London. So if I, if I need to be there, I can, uh, it's great to have it close by, but we're right in the countryside. Um, we have a dog, a very energetic dog. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were finding at the weekends, we just kept on driving from London to the countryside and we eventually realized oh, we should just be in the countryside, mm-hmm. um, visit London when we need to. So just moved in the last couple of weeks. It's, it's all fresh. I'm, uh, in a sort of makeshift office right now. Are you enjoying it so far? Oh, I'm loving it. Loving it. You yeah. also, you Feeling... cycle a lot, right? So I do. I do a lot of running, a lot of cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, well, I, I, I do triathlon, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just been looking into the local triathlon club and found a couple of open water swim sessions that they do not too far from here. So I'm looking forward to trying that out. Excellent. So it, we're getting close to a point where I think it makes sense to wrap up. Do you have any... Uh, just to make this super actionable, do you have any uh, parting Vim tips for people? Any favorite Vim advice, high level or low level? It's all all fair game. Off the top of my head, if you're not already using it, if you don't know about the dot command, mm. go and learn about the dot command. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, I think, I think it is Vim's equivalent to the idea of multiple cursors. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's not a one-to-one analogy. I think the idea of multiple cursors is a very intuitive one because you can see what's happening yep. and it lets you edit multiple parts of the document at the same time. Mm-hmm. The dot command lets you repeat the last change. And so if you set things up in a certain way, then you can perform a change and then very quickly jump to the other locations in the document that need that change made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a slightly, it slightly feels back to front compared to the workflow for multiple cursors. If that's something that you don't already use in Vim, then go and read up on that. That's, yep. that's my top tip. That's a good um, one. And you can just call an H dot and then there you are. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I found that once I had got a small bit of understanding about the dot command, it just, I just kept on trying to use it. And by trying to use it, it sort of guided me towards a much better way of using Vim. Yep. So, yeah, but um, there's a nice article on the Vimcast site about that, like thinking about making your changes something that you can repeat with dot. Or, yeah. un, or undo in one step, I think, which is the same thing, basically. Yeah, that's right. I think it was episode 12. And it pretty much as I was making that episode, it was falling into place for me. And chapter one of my book, Practical Vim, pretty much goes into the dot command. That's, it's so important that I thought it should be the opening chapter of my book. Nice. So I hear you're working on an update of uh, Practical Vim. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's about three years since the book came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got the rare luxury of having written about a, a technical topic that's quite stable and mature. Yeah. So the book is made up of 120 tips. And in three years, I've noticed three of those tips going out of date. 
Mm. So it wasn't a major revision, but I went back to revise those tips. Um, I added a couple of new tips as well. But there was something very satisfying about it because there were a couple of those tips where basically I wanted to write the workflow that I felt should exist. Mm -hmm. But Vim was just not quite coming up to meet me where I wanted it to meet me. Mm -hmm. In one case, that was a bug. I complained about the bug. And then a few months after the book was published, someone had written a patch and fixed that bug. Hmm. I kind of felt like slightly responsible for that. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the other tips was... I had recommended using a little bit of Vim script. It was really like less than 10 lines of Vim script just to add one command that would make it easier so that if you wanted to do a a project-wide search and replace, you could use this little custom command that I provided the code for. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, it would be really nice if Vim had a a command like argdo and buffdo, but for operating on the quick fix list. Mm. So I said, oh, maybe we could have like a, a quick fix do. And now there is a patch out there in the wild that adds this cdo, uh, that's the name they've chosen to go with it, which is sort of consistent with the other quick fix commands, cnext and clast and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I've done all of the work uh, to revise the book, but still this patch is out there in the wild, not yet merged back into Vim. Uh, so that's, that's been a source of frustration for me in the last uh, month or so, <laughs> because basically the update of the book is ready to go, but um, we're waiting on our dear leader to merge this patch. Gotcha. Oh man, we didn't talk about NeoVim. Yeah, there, there's a thing. Give me 10 seconds on NeoVim before we go. I'm glad it's out there because this patch that I'm talking about, someone from the NeoVim project created a pull request out of that and uh-huh. NeoVim has continuous integration. It quickly threw up that there was a failing test. They fixed that and they were like ready to hit the button and merge. And meanwhile, Vim's contribution process involves the mailing list and sure. Bram saying yes or no. And uh, it, it all felt, it felt like the open source process around NeoVim was much more the model that I'm used to and the model that I consider to be healthy for an open source project. Mm, yeah. So I'm excited about it, even just for that. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. Haven't switched yet, haven't tried it, but I'm excited about it. Yeah. And I'm really impressed at the way the two projects are coexisting without being too antagonistic to each other. Sure, yeah. Um, and that's that's really taken me by surprise because I think the initial motivation for NeoVim was quite, you know, for Q, antagonistic sort mm-hmm. of uh, motivation. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm really happy that the two projects are coexisting for now, and uh, yeah, it's it's healthy to have competition. Sure. Uh, I think that's a great place to stop. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for being on. It was great talking to you again. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 160. Thanks for listening.